I came on this show to talk about. No. Oh, no. <laughs> Come on, where's that Woodbury soapbox of yours? It's not often that somebody like me gets a chance to sound off. I've got a subject I feel deeply about. <laughs> Joan, is there anything you don't feel deeply about? Well, now that you mention it, I guess there is. But Luella, honestly, I do want to answer the one question that so many girls write me about. What's that, Joan? Well, they write me about the whole big subject of whether or not to become career women. Those poor little kids just starting out, oh, golly, I, I can't exaggerate how mixed up they are about it. Why? What do you think mixes them up? What mixes a woman up on anything except men. I think it's a crying shame that so many girls let themselves be scared out of self-improvement and success by the same old sly masculine <laughs> lines. Well, there are quite a few sly old masculine lines. You're listening to part one of the series on Sassmouth Dames Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. David Niven recalled in his memoir that everyone in Hollywood read either Luella Parsons or Hedda Hopper each morning over breakfast. The film colony kept up to date with their industry through Luella and Hedda's daily columns, their weekend profiles, and monthly magazine articles. It's difficult to pick up a Hollywood memoir that doesn't mention Luella or Hedda. They inspired loyalty, envy, fear, and long-running feuds. Their critics call them vindictive harpies, petty gossips, illiterate. I would wager that the wags who complained about Luella's dangling participles and split infinitives could think of no other way but to bust a lady's chops. Luella was a born reporter. She knew good copy, and she always got her story. She knew how to connect with audiences through their shared passion for motion pictures. Both women cultivated a folksy, one-to-one private way of addressing the reader, as though they were friends and confidants. Hedda Hopper may have only had a primary school education, but she was a born storyteller. If your brickbat takes aim at Hedda for only dictating her columns rather than writing them, you should know that one of Britain's best love and most successful columnists, A.A. A. Gill, now deceased, also dictated his columns for the Times. Gill was profoundly dyslexic, but that didn't stop him from writing beautiful sentences and they gave him the ability to afford bespoke Savile Row suits lined with scarves by Hermes. For Hedda, as we know, it was her fanciful hat collection. Both women earned their paychecks with copy you could not ignore. They were power brokers and had as much influence in shaping the studio era as the moguls. Luella and Hedda had an impact on celebrity culture that made them recognizable figures even today, where they continue to inspire pop cultural references in television and film from Ryan Murphy to the Coen brothers. Luella and Hedda had many things in common. Chief among them was the urge to leave their small town and get to where the action was. Luella vowed that she would be the most famous writer to ever leave her small town of Dixon, Indiana. After Hedda watched Ethel Barrymore perform on stage when she was a girl, she was compelled to become an actress. 
They were first-generation careerists at a time when most women defined themselves through motherhood and marriage. Let's start with Luella and look back to see how they got to the top of the celebrity food chain. Luella Ettinger was born in Freeport, Illinois in 1881, but eventually changed the date to 1895 when it suited her. You have to give a woman a lot of credit for having enough moxie to shave off 14 birthdays. Her father was a clothing merchant whose initial success led to opening a chain of shops with his partner. Perhaps his non-stop hours and poor health led to his untimely death from tuberculosis when he was only 31 years old, leaving behind his wife alone to raise five children. Luella's earliest ambition was to be a writer. Luella wrote her first story when she was only 10 years old. It was called The Flower Girl of New York. Even though Luella had never been there, she already had her sights set on where things happened. On the tales of her first literary effort, Luella buttonholed the neighbor who edited the local newspaper and asked him to publish her story. The editor, Dwight Breed, assured Luella that one day the paper would publish her story, but probably not until after she was dead. Soon after, Luella had an accident and fell from the family's hayloft. She had been holding a pair of garden shears. On the way down, she fractured an elbow, broke a tooth, and received a big cut on her chin. From her sickbed, she asked for Dwight Breed to pay a visit. In mock seriousness, as Luella staged her best Sandra Bernhardt from a self-styled deathbed, the editor sympathized with Luella and promised that her story would be published the following day. Luella recalled later in life when she caught the biggest scoop of her career when she reported the split between Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, that the joy she felt paled in comparison with her first newspaper byline for the Flower Girl of New York. Despite the lasting thrill she experienced from her first byline, Luella was not sentimental about her childhood. She recalled, My sense of drama was too strong in me to permit me to enjoy the cramped opportunities of a juvenile. I wanted to grow up as quickly as possible and to be hailed as the best writer in America, at least the youngest and the most beautiful. Determined, ambitious, Luella sent out manuscripts and didn't give up even when they were returned with a rejection slip. Even though her family mocked her literary ambitions, she continued to write stories and poems. Most of the stories were about a wronged girl. From the beginning of her writing career, Luella was always interested in the woman's point of view. She affirmed she was always violently on the side of the woman in any case. Luella makes a bold statement in her memoir. She writes, The first person I ever cared deeply and sincerely about was myself. Today, that's still a radical thing for a woman to put herself first. Luella felt stifled by the small-town rules about what was wholesome or proper. Her mother moved the family to Dixon, another small town in Illinois, and remarried. 
Luella spent her summer holidays working on the Dixon Star newspaper, collecting reports for the society pages. As a fledgling reporter, Luella carried a yellow notebook with her religiously, keen to adopt the habits of her chosen profession. She thought reporters always jotted down notes. She declared that she would have rather gone without her lace-edged underwear than her notebook. Luella said of her time as a reporter for the Dixon Star, I took down day by day all I heard from local storekeepers and gossip mongers. Nine times out of ten, thanks to the gossip, I knew what was going to happen the next day. In Hollywood, I applied the same methods and became the best informed woman in the town. Luella met John Parsons when she was 16, and they married when she was 17. She was anxious to be a grown-up and have a life of her own. He was considered the most eligible bachelor in Dixon, and Luella was pleased that she landed him. One year into their marriage, Parsons moved his young bride to Burlington, Iowa. Their marital bliss ended a few months after they arrived. Luella had been popular in Dixon. She enjoyed an active social life and had many friends, but in Burlington, she felt she embarrassed her husband when he had guests over to the boarding house where they lived. Luella would suggest a word game or playing follow the leader, party games which had been fashionable among her old friends, now marked her out as someone from a backwater. She read some of her poems during social occasions, which were met with disdain. Luella might well have believed the only good to come from her marriage to John Parsons is the daughter she had with him, Harriet. In her memoir, Luella revised her marital history and claimed their marriage ended when John died, fighting in the Great War in 1918. I'm sure many divorcees would have liked to have an ex who died far away in the trenches. In truth, John Parsons had carried on a very public affair with his secretary until Luella had had enough, packed her bags, and moved to Chicago with Harriet years before the Archduke Ferdinand was shot. She wasn't entirely on her own at first in Chicago. Luella and Harriet stay with an aunt and uncle and their preteen daughter. The first job Luella grabbed to have some income of her own was in a stereo-opticon factory. She made $9 a week. Luella didn't stay there long because it became clear that she was just there as a cover for her boss who was having a tawdry affair with the other secretary, and Luella would just do all the work. Briefly, she worked on the Chicago Tribune, retyping wire stories, but she was discontent regurgitating copy. She was there to be a writer. Luella kept up her reporter's instincts when she wasn't working. She was sharp, she kept an ear open and paid attention. She learned that her 12-year-old cousin, Maggie Edinger, was close friends with a girl who lived next door to the Spore family. Since Luella was devoted to the cinema and had dreamed of working in the film industry, she knew that the surname Spore stood for the S in the SNA Film Studio. The Chicago studio was a phonetic spelling, E-S-S-A-N-A-Y, of the letters S and A, which stood for George Spohr and Gilbert Anderson. Chicago at the time was home to two major studios when Luella arrived, SNA and the Selig Studio. 
SNA was founded in 1907. It produced mostly two-reel comedies that ran 15 to 20 minutes long. The studio had five directors on staff and had stars such as Gloria Swanson, Wallace Beery, Francis X. Bushman, and Ben Turpin. By 1911, the studio received an average of 100 scripts each day by post. The studio heads decided to hire a scenario editor to go through the slush pile and develop scripts for production. Spore and Anderson placed an ad in the paper and were overwhelmed by applicants, including one by Luella Parsons. Most people would have played a wait and see once they submitted their resume, but not Luella. She bribed her niece Maggie's friend with cinema tickets if she would arrange an introduction to the woman next door, Mrs. Spore. And then Luella put on a major charm offensive. You can imagine how persuasive she was as a single mother setting out on her own in the big city. One night, Mrs. Spore ambushed her husband when she mentioned when he mentioned that he that she had met someone who would be great for his office job. Spore tried to wave it off and said, "Sure, I'll be glad to meet her sometime." The Mrs. told him he was in luck; the lady was right behind the door. Luella stepped into the room and made her case. Luella landed the position at $20 a week, which was more than double what her salary had been at the Stereo Opticon factory. Immediately, she found a flat near the studio and moved in with Harriet, thanking her aunt, uncle, and especially Maggie. At the same time, Luella's mother separated from her second husband. She sold up the house in Dixon and moved in with her daughter and Harriet to keep house and mind the baby while Luella worked in the studio. Each day at the studio, Luella thrived. When she looked back, she cited the four years she spent in SNA as the happiest of her life. She was in the middle of a giant creative enterprise that was expanding at a massive rate. Every aspect of the film industry opened up to Luella in the studio, from story selection, editing, conferences with directors, actors, producers, costumers, finance, and when she had time, she was on set observing all the technical aspects of filmmaking. Luella Parsons entered SNA as a fan, but she left with a postgraduate degree in filmmaking. The scenarios that came by post were sent by a huge cross-section of the American population. Young and old sent stories written on scraps of paper, the lids of shoeboxes, bits of wallpaper, anything that held ink. During the four years she spent as a scenario editor, Luella estimated that she read 20,000 submissions. When she found a good one in the pile, she would edit it, flesh it out with additional characters, scenes, or plot development. She would also add notes for the director and the cameraman when necessary. After a scenario was chosen, Luella would then verify the originality of the story with the author and send on a check for $25 or sometimes more. Once, Luella was nearly sacked when she chose a script and dashed off the check. It turned out that the author had sent the same story to the Vitagraph studio, who was nearly ready with their version for distribution. 
And as a result, SNA had to destroy the film they had in production at a loss of several thousand dollars. When she couldn't find a good story in the mailbag, Luella wrote her own. She wrote at least 100 original stories for the studio during her tenure as scenario editor. She wrote stories that propelled Gloria Swanson and Francis X. Bushman to stardom. One story for Gloria sounds particularly juicy. It was called The Broken Pledge, produced in 1915. In the plot, Gloria and two friends vow to never marry and to remain independent women. Conflict ensues. One of her most popular stories that she wrote for the studio was called Chains. It was based on a murder trial that Luella had covered for the Dixon Star. It focuses on a love story between the convicted and the girl he loves, whom he marries in a jailhouse wedding ceremony. Francis X. Bushman was the star. Luella noted of this time, the world was my oyster and Chicago was providing the cocktail sauce. In her office, Luella had a box for each director. She assigned the stories at random, which the directors had to take, often grousing at her choices. But she had more authority than the directors when it came to the work in production. Luella herself was profiled for magazine features. Profiles of Luella appeared in Photoplay Magazine, the Saturday Evening Post, and Modern Screen Magazine which told readers about the woman who was the story editor in the big Chicago studio. Four years into her contract at SNA, a bombshell went off in the studio once the bean counters were brought in to take a look at the books. SNA struggled to meet the demand for their pictures, and the studio always turned a healthy profit, but they hemorrhaged cash due to rapid expansion both with the new studio they had built in California for their westerns and the new soundstage that they built down the block from the existing studio in Chicago. The accountant pulled a fit when he looked at the books for the story department. Luella had sometimes paid as much as $75 for a story. The bookkeeper was after her neck. He advised the studio owners that Luella's position be terminated and that SNA should follow the trend for staff writers who would be far cheaper to have on the books than unsolicited scenarios. Before the axe officially fell, Luella scrambled to find another position. A friend from the Chicago Tribune, Mary King, arranged a meeting for Luella with James Keeley, who was the publisher for the struggling Chicago Herald. Although the Chicago Herald was in financial trouble, it did have a profitable film section, mostly from advertising revenue. The Herald ran regular columns that covered Chicago actors and one for the film reviews. Weekend editions added gossip and some serialized film plots to their film coverage. Keeley initially refused Luella the job when they met, telling her he didn't need another film columnist. Luella refused to take no for an answer. She went to see him again. This time, she flirted. She dressed up a little. She wore a nice hat. And then she suggested that she could write a column based on her experience in SNA. Keeley agreed. He was charmed. 
During a Christmas break, she returned to see her friends in Dixon, Illinois, and met in Burlington, Iowa, then on with more friends. During her stop in Iowa, Luella fell for a steamship captain named Jack McCaffrey. They had a whirlwind romance and were married a few weeks after they met. The marriage had a short-term expiry date. They were separated after six months. The rift in their relationship came about in one of the most common ways, money. McCaffrey felt threatened by his wife's earning power. Once she began buying his clothing, his threatened manhood could take no more. At the same time she married in January 1915, Luella left her position at SNA and began working full-time in the Chicago Herald. Luella wrote a daily column called Scene on the Screen, in addition to her weekly screenwriting series. At first, Luella's column reported mergers and acquisitions within the film industry. It was all geared towards insiders. The dry business news wasn't what general readers wanted, and they wrote letters of complaint. Luella read the letters and tailored her column with more stories about what the stars were really like. Luella's weekly series, How to Write Photo Plays, first appeared in the Herald in December 1914. Luella gave a wide range of advice from developing stories and characters, how to pitch to a film studio, how to choose topics. In the summer of 1915, Luella's serialized column was compiled into a book and published. For years, it was considered the best guide to writing for the screen. Later in 1915, she had a new weekend series called How to Become a Film Actress. That was an extremely popular column with readers. She was billed as the motion picture editor of the Chicago Herald at this point. Luella kept the contacts she made in SNA, and they were valuable for interviews and the latest news for her column. She stalked hotel lobbies where film stars were known to stay, hoping for news or an interview. Luella had a bright idea to make frequent visits to the train station, reasoning that she could catch stars who had a layover on their way out to either coast. Luella realized that stars who were held over for a few hours might be amenable to an interview. One trick she used seemed effective in getting the stars to open up. Luella noticed that when she developed a distracted, flighty air, film stars relaxed and were more forthcoming than if she stared at them intently. A disinterested stranger would get more juicy details than an eagle-eyed reporter. She used the technique throughout her career, but with mixed results. Some people, like Frances Marion, became unnerved. Frances Marion noted of Luella, When you greeted her, she smiled at you in an abstract manner as if mentally she were writing your obituary. Luella scored plum interviews with Mary Pickford and Theta Barra by stalking out the train station. When she interviewed Theta Barra, she was in a separate car deep in character, swaddled in fur, with the window sealed shut because her Arab blood demanded the heat, until she gushed for sweat and finally begged for air. Profiles of what the film stars were like in real life became the focus of scene on the screen. 
Luella printed stories about the romantic adventures of the stars, what they wore, what they liked to eat, and how they lived. Mostly, the profiles created the impression that stars adhered to wholesome middle-class American values. She described homespun settings at breakfast, tea, or dinner to show her readers that the stars were just like everybody else. Luella pioneered the celebrity profile, a format that continues largely unchanged today. Even if they were fudged a bit, and Luella met stars in a restaurant or a hotel lobby rather than their homes, the interviews were designed to counteract the rising contingent of reformers who believed the motion picture industry had a ruinous effect on American morality. In her daily column, Luella rallied behind the didactic didactic merits of pictures of the way they elevated American principles. Luella joined the campaigns for film studios to produce more educational films, and in her columns, she advised parents to censor what their children watched, that they should view everything before they allowed their children to see it, to make sure it had a proper influence. 1915 was a big year for her career. She had the daily and weekend columns, a book published, the weekly series on how to become a motion picture actress. She was billed as the film editor of the Chicago Herald. And she launched a debate in print with the paper's drama critic, who had published an editorial arguing that pictures were nothing but a passing fad. But the big thing that happened to Luella in 1915 was her first big controversy. Her first brush with national controversy, when D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation premiered. James Keeley, Luella's boss in the Herald, joined public figures who argued that the film should be banned in Chicago. Local politicians had watched riots sparked by protest against the film in other cities and issued the ban. Around the country, black filmgoers, civic leaders, the clergy, and business owners rejected Griffith's portrayal of the KKK as romantic patriots who then tortured and ravaged black communities. Protesters feared the film would incite even more racist attacks on black citizens, which it did, when white supremacists terrorized black bodies and destroyed property in the wake. Keeley and the civic members who lobbied for the ban were worried about damage to property and lost income that resulted from white counter-protests. The men made a business decision rather than a defense of black civil rights. Luella published an editorial in the film section against the ban. She praised D.W. Griffith for his artistic vision, calling Birth of a Nation Griffith's Screen Symphony. She argued that the film's ban was an assault against free speech and artistic censorship. She didn't consider the issue from the black viewpoint because she didn't have to. Luella argued for art without acknowledging its impact. She felt so strongly that she implored Jim Keeley to see the picture and arranged a special screening for him. Afterwards, the publisher was won over and put the Herald on the mission to overturn the ban, which it was. 
1917, the Herald sent Luella to her first film conference, hosted by the Motion Picture Theater Owners of America in New York City. She even had an expense account for the first time. Luella congratulated herself for buying a new black silk dress for $35, which she charged to room service. Luella liked to say that she knew the moguls before they were moguls, before Sam Goldfish became Sam Goldwyn. She knew Lasky, Lemley, and Mayer. They were her peers in the film community. When the Herald was purchased in 1918 by the Hearst Syndicate, oddly enough, and her column was discontinued, Luella set her sights on New York City. D.W. Griffith, who had become Luella's friend during the censorship battle, gave her a lead for a job in the publicity department with Pathé. John Flynn, a publicist for famous players Lasky, lined up an interview for her with William Lewis, the editor of the New York Morning Telegraph. For the interview, Luella came equipped with letters of recommendation signed for her by Adolf Zukor, Louis Selznick, Carl Lemley, and D.W. Griffith, who all attested to Luella's impact on the film colony. Lewis wasn't impressed, though. He accused Luella of having written them herself. At the end of the interview, he wasn't convinced he needed her. He said he would need two days to think about it. Luella shook on it, but from her point of view, two days was too long. The next day, she rang him to say she was on her way out of town for a few days and wondered if he had made a decision. Lewis asked where she was headed. Brooklyn, she replied. He laughed and gave her the job. Luella was given a raise, a higher salary than she had in Chicago. She also had the option to syndicate her column for more money. Where once she only had one black satin frock for evening social events, now she began to fill her wardrobe with many stylish clothes. Working for the Telegraph, she went out several nights a week for industry-related events where she made connections and found scoops for the column. Not long after she started in the Telegraph with her daily column and weekend special profiles, the editor of the film section went off to fight in the war. Lewis gave Luella the job. Luella panicked. She didn't know the first thing about laying out a newspaper. She prevailed upon Theodore Teddy Bean, a first-generation newspaper woman. Teddy was a suffrage campaigner. She wore ties, smoked cigars, and carried a walking stick. Teddy was the weekend editor for The Telegraph. Teddy took Luella by the hand and gave her a crash course in how to be a newspaper editor. Lewis rewarded the hours and the effort Luella put in with a staff of six women. Lewis referred to the group as the Garden of Cats. Luella thrived in the role and supported the accomplished women, who many of whom became talented reporters. One of the women in the Garden of Cats, Frances Agro, became a Hollywood screenwriter. In 1919, she added Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg to her list of contacts. Luella won Mayer's friendship by sidestepping the German origin of the film Passion, 
an import with Pola Negri that he was distributing in the States. Some critics had argued the film had no right to be shown so close to the war's end and that it was unpatriotic. But Luella wrote a glowing review of the film without ever mentioning it was a German picture. When she met Irving Thalberg, their meeting had been scheduled over dinner in a restaurant. As the hour approached, Luella was peeved to find what she thought was Carl Lemley's office boy waiting for her. She was short on patience when they met at the table. Thalberg was 20 years old and looked much younger. He had to convince Luella that he was in fact the new producer who was about to leave for Hollywood. Luella didn't just network with important men. She joined women's organizations such as the Woman Pays Club, whose members included Anita Luce, Adela Rogers St. John's, Frances Marion. They held luncheon meetings with important women writers and artists. She also joined the New York Women's Newspaper Club. Luella met B.B. Daniels in 1921, one of her closest friends throughout the rest of her life. She also made close friendship with another woman, a Miss Hedda Hopper. Both Bibi and Hedda fed Luella juicy morsels for her column. In 1922, United States Senator Henry Myers called for national censorship of the film industry as a, re- a response to recent scandals, such as the Fatty Arbuckle trial for the death of Virginia Rappay and the drug scandals from the death of Wallace Reed. Luella used her column to argue against government censorship. She was probably more influential than public figures such as Will Hayes because she was a gifted writer who could clarify arguments and persuade a mass audience. Luella wrote of Myers, he does not mention that there have been dozens of scandals on Wall Street, and yet no one attempts to put the bridle on the financial world and put it under censorship. The editorials she wrote were widely read among the film stars, directors, and producers, many of whom appreciated her defense of the industry. And they reached out to her for interviews to thank Luella for her impassioned support. Luella first met Marion Davies in 1918, after she made her second picture, Cecilia of the Pink Roses. Luella sent a note complimenting the film. In response, Marion invited Luella to lunch. In 1922, after the release of Marion Davies' picture, When Knighthood Was in Flower, Luella Parsons published an editorial which praised Marion's talents, but the real point of the article was to chastise William Randolph Hearst for bombarding the public with a massive publicity campaign. His public relations assault put Marion's name in lights 40 feet tall over the Criterion Marquee in New York City. The ad copy boasted the expensive gowns and sets, Luella took Hearst to task in her editorial. She argued, why don't you give Marion Davies a a chance? She's a good actress, a beauty, and a comedy starring bet. Why talk about how much was spent on the lovely costumes and the production cost? By speaking directly to William Randolph Hearst, she risked offending him 
but she was discussing his favorite topic when she praised Marion's talent and beauty. After the editorial was published, Marion invited Luella to a banquet hosted by the Theater Owners of America, where the columnist was one of the speakers on the schedule. When Marion came to collect her for the banquet, Luella discovered Hearst waiting in the car as the young man she spoke of. Hearst told Luella that he enjoyed her editorial and noted that she should write more things like that. It's worth noting that in addition to the so-called tough tone she took with Hearst in her editorial, Luella lavished praise on Hearst as a producer with his Cosmopolitan Pictures and many other columns that she wrote. And this was at a time when traditional journalists regarded Hearst's sensationalist approach to the newspaper racket as a travesty. So Luella was one of the few voices out there saying nice things about Hearst. Weeks after the banquet, she had lunch with Marion and mentioned that she was dissatisfied with her job at the New York Telegraph. Marion replied that Mr. Hearst would be interested to hear it and might she be permitted to tell him. Hearst invited Luella to dinner to offer her a job, and he pushed a three-year contract towards her across the table. It had her salary at $150 a week. Luella replied that she would need at least a salary of $250 a week to leave the telegraph. Keep in mind that adjusted for inflation, $250 in 1923 was the equivalent of over $3,700 a week today. Luella responded by having her attorney send back a revised contract with a list of added concessions and the $250 a week she wanted. Hearst was aghast. Who was she to refuse? Everybody signed the same contract. He sat on it for weeks before he changed his mind and accepted Luella's terms. When he called her into his office while he signed, he said, I'm disappointed in you. You forgot to ask for hairpins. Luella signed to be Hearst's motion picture editor for the New York American on 19 November 1923. Luella repeated a line in her coverage of Marion's films. Marion Davies has never looked lovelier. It became a catchphrase that insiders used when they joked about Luella's role as cheerleader for Hearst and Marion. The line became a camp classic. In her memoir, Luella noted that her association with Hearst had been compared to something out of Edgar Allan Poe or Boccaccio and everything in between. If you listen to popular accounts, Luella owed her position with Hearst Hearst to a cagey piece of blackmail. Chief among the conspiracy theories appears in Peter Bogdanovich's picture, The Cat's Meow, released in 2002. It tells the story of what happened on the cruise Hearst and Marion hosted in 1924 for Thomas Ince's birthday, which led to his untimely death. In The Cat's Meow, Luella was a hangers-on, a hack, a dimwit, whom nobody liked. She fell into a plush contract for life because she witnessed Hearst shoot Ince in the head when he had mistaken him for Charlie Chaplin, who was putting the moves on his beloved Marion. 
the reality is that there's no proof that Luella was even on the yacht. She didn't make her first trip to California until the following year, in 1925. Luella had made a name for herself in a highly competitive industry. She had written a daily motion picture column for nearly a decade before she joined the Hearst Syndicate. Stars, directors, producers, and moguls held her in esteem because she had defended the pictures against the reformers and the censors who rallied in the press that it was bad for American morals. She pioneered the media star profile that continues in the forum today. It was clear within the newspaper industry in New York that Luella did not have an off switch. She was in the American newsroom early in the morning every day. She wrote her columns before she left for dinner at the end of the day. At night, she went to industry galas, banquets, the theater, the opera, restaurants, speakeasies, and parties to gain copy for her column. She developed a close friendship with many women and men in the industry. Luella had a knack for increasing circulation. When she joined the Telegraph, for example, the weekend insert for the film section was a few pages, mostly ads. By the time she left, she had expanded it to fill 24 pages, filled with articles on stars, the industry, with editorials and reviews. Luella's influence extended to film production, not just its critical reception. In 1922, Carl Lemley sent a letter to Luella, which noted how her comments were used in editing Foolish Wives before its general release. Lemley wrote, A great many changes have been made to the cutting and editing of the film Foolish Wives, thanks to your constructive criticism. Luella made her first trip to Hollywood in 1925 to spend the summer gathering items for a column and seeing the sights. She noted when she stepped off the train with Marion Davies, she wanted a tour of the town before she even washed the dirt from her face. She wanted to see everything. Stars such as Gloria Swanson hosted parties where Luella was the guest of honor. She was welcome in the top echelon of film society. Hearst had an ulterior motive for sending Luella out to Hollywood for the summer. She had agreed to keep an eye on Marion and report back to Hearst, who was staying on in New York. Eventually, he traveled out to California at the end of the summer and presented Marion with a diamond bracelet. Luella interrupted that Marion didn't deserve it because she had been a bad girl. Marion had been playing around with some man, and Luella did not spare Hearst the details. Hearst brushed it off and said, anything Marion does is okay with me. Luella, Luella was a friend of Marion's, but Marion knew that their friendship did not extend further than her position with Hearst. In public and in print, Luella advocated for professional women and feminist ideals for women's rights, their right to be their own agent. But Luella Parsons was keenly aware of first wave sensibilities. Not only did she love and value herself, she felt aligned with other women. She celebrated women's professional accomplishments in her column. In one profile of Marion Fairfax, Luella wrote that the screenwriter and producer found the secret to a happy marriage, 
a career. Luella argued that women who have a life outside the home suffer lower rates of anxiety and illness because they're busy and productive and therefore happy. But at the same time, Luella aligned herself with men who had access to power. Marion was not the only woman that Luella set up for Hearst. Once Hearst merged Cosmopolitan Pictures with MGM, he viewed his personal interests as bound with Mayer and the studio. One night in 1925, Luella invited May Murray to a dinner party hosted by Hearst and his wife Millicent. Luella had been friends with May since her days with the Chicago Herald when she was busy hustling interviews from film stars over layover in the train depot. When the silent film star, known as the girl with the bee-stung lips, showed up, she found Luella at the head of a long table filled with men, lawyers, investors, bankers, Will Hayes and William Randolph Hearst. If May hadn't figured out at the door that Luella had set her up for an ambush, she realized soon she was in a trap. Hearst leaned over and said to May that he heard she was moving to Europe. With enthusiasm, May replied that she was. She received a plum contract from Ufa to work at their studio in Berlin. After she finished laying out her bright future, Hearst told May that they would have to boycott her films in the States. No one would ever see them outside Europe. He explained that she was a big investment for the studio, and they couldn't brook competition for their star from another outfit. Will Hayes, oh he of the chipmunk cheeks, broke in to ask if May had considered how unpatriotic it would be for her to build up another country's film industry. Before the coffee was served, May had decided to forget about the German picture contract. Back at her desk on The American, Luella kept up a schedule of full-time work and full-time networking. She was also deep in a passionate affair with Peter Brady, a self-made man who rose to become a labor leader and a bank president. He was an outspoken opponent of film censorship and was on the guest list of many East Coast film banquets. A divorce was impossible to the married man, so they carried on seeing each other on the down low for seven years. On a cold and rainy night in November 1925, at the end of a long day, when she struggled to make her meetings and and interviews, Luella had coughed up blood at her desk. The hemorrhage scared her so much that she rang, rang Teddy Bean, who took her to see a doctor. The doctor's results were what Luella feared, that she had tuberculosis, the disease that killed her father when, she, when he was only 31. Luella was reluctant to follow orders and stay in bed. How could she when she had a column to put out? It was election night, and Jimmy Walker was waiting for the poll returns to come in for his mayoral campaign. At Hearst's party, Luella ran upstairs to take a call from Marion, who was out in Hollywood. When Luella reached the phone, she had another coughing fit that racked her chest until more blood appeared in her handkerchief, and then she passed out. Immediately, Hearst relieved Luella of her position, but he kept her on at full salary. 
He told her to pack, that he was sending her out to Colton and Palm Springs to recuperate. On any other occasion, Luella would have been delighted to take the train west, but this time, she thought she was going out west to die, just like her father. As 1926 drew to a close, Luella had felt imprisoned in Colton, but her condition improved nearly as soon as she arrived. She stopped coughing blood and began to put on some of the weight she had lost. Colton was 50 miles from Hollywood, but it felt to Luella like it were more like the face of the moon. The remote town and the desert had only two telephones, each the same line. She took comfort in visits from her daughter Harriet, who was doing well in university. At one point, Daryl Zanuck came to stay at the little hotel where he was working nearby on a location shoot. Luella wrote, that Zanuck became like blood to her by the time he left. No doubt they shared their obsession with film production, plus that they were both screenwriters at one point. Join me next time for part two of my series on Luella and Hedda when I talk about Hedda Hopper. Thanks very much for listening. Bye.